0: Love, talk Radio So good evening, everybody, or anybody or whoever is there now or will be in the future. Welcome. Uh, this is, I think, the first time I've done two shows back to back. I did one last night, uh, and I'm doing a second one tonight. Uh, last week, I talked about depression, and last night, I talked about uh, anxiety. And, uh, as always, uh, I talk about these uh, psychological states of being, these human reactions, universal human reactions, not as sicknesses or disorders or diseases, uh, but as purely human reactions to different types of situations that life brings an individual. Uh, I don't know any human being, and this includes me, who hasn't experienced anxiety, uh, sometimes strong anxiety. I've never met any human being who hasn't been depressed. I've met some who are extremely depressed and act as cheerful as they possibly can in order to deny that they're depressed for whatever reason, uh, that they feel a need to do this. Uh, but often when uh, I watch somebody perform, and that's what their life is, a kind of performance in which they try to deny the human emotions that are so deeply rooted in their own personal story, the the the, the emotions that are reactions to the interpretations that the story involves about the events of their life. And uh, you can't understand a human being unless you understand the context of their life, the history of their life, um, uh, the way they've learned to interpret their life, the social interactions uh, that, uh, through family and friends and clergy and school and the myriad other forces that shape the way a person sees the world. You can't understand them unless you understand all of these things and how they interact. So I should say at the beginning of this show that when I do psychotherapy, I understand that my job is to help understand another human being and through the process of my understanding them, uh, help them understand themselves better and perhaps make choices uh, in the way their story is configured, the character they are in that story, and the choices they make about the story to come. What kind of story they will write? What kind of context will they create? Where will they go and what they will do uh, to change their life so that uh, a new story, a, what I would consider, and they would agree with me, consider a better story, one that is more loving, uh, that leads to better relationships, more success, uh, uh, more um, success. And for me, uh, creativity. I've done a number of shows on creativity. And to me, a creative life is the best life of all. Um, So what we have then when I do therapy, when I talk about therapy, uh, is an interaction with another human being. And that interaction is designed to help them to the degree that they want to change the story they live with. It's to provide... The kind of a relationship and interaction that will allow them to make these significant changes and uh, improve. Or what we both agree, what they agree, is an improvement in in the existence that led them to come for psychotherapy in the first place. Uh, I should add at this point that nobody goes for therapy as a lock. I've never met anybody who goes for therapy as a lock. You go and you expose yourself to another human being uh, only when there is great duress and you're in great psychological pain. So, uh, let me give you a little history of my background as a therapist and uh, where I am now. Uh, I, you know, I think it's clear in some ways where I am now, but I want to flesh all of that out. Uh, I was trained. Uh, uh, I did my doctoral work at New York University, which was psychoanalytically oriented in its training, uh, but not particularly uh, doctrinaire. There were a wide variety of individuals uh, who, who influenced me in my work and my supervision. Uh, interestingly enough, there was a number of the strong faculty uh, where we learned research, and many of those individuals felt that uh, psychotherapy was a sham, since the concepts that built were built upon therapy, the theories had never been tested and were really kind of a uh, uh, you know a story without any real foundation and There was much uh, dissension between the faculty who were experimental and the faculty who were more academic and those faculty who were Uh, practicing uh, psychologists, practicing clinicians, psychiatrists, uh, in many cases, uh, again, who were trained psychoanalytically and swore by whichever psychoanalytic variation uh, they uh, happened to believe in. And I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, There were some behavior therapists. Uh, There were existential therapists. And at this point, I'm not gonna go into those differences They've sort of all faded, uh, and they faded because all of those significant differences that led to conflict and debate uh, and sometimes uh, good resolution and sometimes hard feelings have been largely wiped out by the onslaught of biological medical psychiatry, which I have been railing against uh, for three years on uh, Block Talk Radio the view that a human being who is suffering, who's confused, who's depressed, who's anxious, uh, is sick in some way, disordered, and increasingly requires not uh, a psychotherapeutic relationship, but a prescription. Uh, the insurance companies love this because psychotherapy, when it's done right, uh, by whatever theory, by whatever method, and I'll talk about some of that in a little bit, um, is a sloppy, long process. By the time somebody walks into my office, uh, they've been messing up and messed up for a very long time, and it takes time. Uh, if we both work together and form a decent relationship and an honest relationship to get any kind of change, people protect who they are and where they are. Um, uh, Freud used to say the resistance of the neurosis uh, it, it keeps people from changing, and I don't believe that nonsense for one bit. What I believe keeps people from changing is that they're afraid to change. There's great fear. Whatever little they have in their life, they want to protect, and and uh, so they're not going to give themselves over to somebody unless there's real trust, and unless they really have. Uh, some hope that that can be generated, that real change can take place. Uh, all of that, that those ideas uh, are kind of passe, and I'm not really, uh, uh, I don't really have much to do with the field anymore. Interesting. Um, I, I'm not involved with a graduate school. I'm not involved with many therapists at this point. Uh, much of my life, I've got just gone back to start a new practice and I share it with two uh, friends and colleagues who live with me down here in Florida. Um, but the larger field has been lost to me, and uh, what I can see of it is that psychologists are looking for prescription privileges. Um, I think that the psychoanalytic schools are doing fairly well, probably in New York and Chicago, maybe Los Angeles, but I don't think they're doing well anywhere else. And more and more it's a desperate kind of a thing to keep some kind of patients and keep psychiatry from gobbling up the entire field. As I say, the insurance companies really love that because instead of a messy long-term relationship in which you see somebody for 45 minutes or 50 minutes or even an hour or more, you can see them for 10 minutes, uh, uh, you know, listen to the complaint, go into the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, see what diagnosis fits, uh, write the prescription that uh, seems to fit that particular diagnosis, and send them on their way. Uh, It saves a lot of money. It ruins a lot of lives. And it doesn't do the kind of changing, I think, good psychotherapy uh, leads to. Uh, As I uh, developed as a psychologist... I was always very critical of many of the ideas, and I won't go into why, uh, you know what, what, what was in my life that made me so critical. And sometimes I don't think I was even fair in my criticism. Um, I think sometimes I was ang- angry and I was arrogant about the disagreeing with people. Uh, you know, you can't change anybody's mind unless you're patient with them. And while I could be very patient with the people I work with, and increasingly over the years, very patient with uh, my students. Uh, I never really was that patient with therapists. I felt with all the training that somebody had going through a Ph.D. or even an MSW, they should be a little more open-minded uh, and critical of the ideas that guided their work. Um, the big change in my career came when I digested the ideas of, Thomas Zass, and other critics of the mental health field and seriously began to consider the idea that what I was looking at when someone was depressed or anxious was a way of seeing the world that was the result of a story, the way they lived their life, uh, especially the way those in their lives had treated them uh, and, and pressured them to behave, uh, and, and that led to all kinds of needs to change my own work. Uh, I was always a very heavy reader, and unlike a lot of my colleagues who only read uh, that which was uh, uh, supportive of their ideas, psychoanalysts, I many years ago had a psychoanalyst, uh, and I recommended a book that I thought was an excellent book, um, and said, she said to me, um, well, is it psychoanalytic? And I said, no. She said, do you know who analyzed the authors? And I looked at her in absolute disbelief, and she said, I won't read anything unless I know who analyzed the author. Um, That was the last time we ever spoke. And uh, I haven't been unhappy about the fact that I never spoke to this individual again. We parted ways some time later. I went to work someplace. I don't know what happened to her. But that was not an atypical attitude. I once had a social worker I was supervising who I suggested uh, to read. I urged her to read. I said, you have to keep opening your mind to different ideas. Certainly you understand that uh, uh, our theories of human behavior that guide us and our work with patients, the people we work with, can't be at its terminal. Uh, uh, we 're not at the end of the development of our science or our art, and I would say that people would, there would be a glimmer, however, that involved uh, a real change in, in the in the attitude and the thinking of the individual I was speaking to and This young woman said to me, "I read books in graduate school i don 't tend to read anymore uh, again." Uh, I feel sorry, I felt sorry, and I feel sorry if she's still working with people for anybody who comes into her way because that's a blind individual. And uh, I mean blind in a metaphorical way. And uh, an individual can't be blind when they're working with people who are blind uh, when they come into the office as to what are alternative ways of seeing themselves and the world and what choices can be made that can lead to a better life. Uh, so, I gave up on the idea that as a therapist, that I was curing anybody of anything, uh, and it became my struggle to understand what I was actually doing, uh, and even the word therapy began to bother me, because what kind of therapy was I doing? What I really thought I was doing was uh, doing a form of teaching, a kind of one-on-one teaching uh, in which uh, I was helping somebody understand things in a different way. And that put me in great conflict with some of my colleagues, but not all. Uh, there were many individuals who agreed with me. And I made a discovery over the years I should in- in- eject at this point. And that is, what somebody does in their office when the door is closed uh, is invisible, Um, We're not allowed to know what anybody else does because it's all confidential. And the fact of the matter is, what somebody says publicly may not be how they behave privately. Well, isn't that true in all walks of life? And so I discovered over the years that many therapists who sounded psychoanalytic or behavioral, uh, really what they actually did had little to do with uh, the theory. And the good ones uh, followed what my idea of psychotherapy is, regardless of the theory. Um, I should point out a couple of studies that were very influential in my thinking. And one was that regardless of the therapeutic uh, background of the therapist, whether they had psychoanalytic training, behavioral training, whether they had a PhD, whether they went to social work school, whether they were a psychiatrist, none of that really seemed to matter in terms of their success in working with an individual or with people. The first thing that we discover is that without therapy, people tend to get better. They tend to improve. They tend to work out their problems uh, with almost the same frequency as, as if they don't have therapy. And that comes from studies that really looked at cure rates of various diagnostic categories. And so I have a problem with that because I don't think anybody gets cured of anything. Uh, and certainly, as I discussed yesterday and the week before, people who are seriously depressed, who experience a loss, for example, very often work it through without a great deal of help from anyone. Or they work it through with help from friends, from loved ones, uh, from self-help groups. Um, one of the things I will talk about, if not tonight, uh, then then in, the, in a subsequent show, uh, is how important I think self-help groups are. You don't necessarily need a professional uh, to help. If the situation that you find yourself in with other human beings allows for change to take place, fosters change. And so that was one important issue. The other thing that I discovered uh, through reading, and a lot of studies showed this, that what really made a difference was whether or not the therapist respected uh, the patient and allowed for the dignity of the patient. And uh, one of the things I scream about all the time with these psycho-diagnosticians uh, 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 and psycho-physiologists uh, and psycho-medicationists uh, is that there's no way for a relationship to form and that the moment all you do is label somebody, you're denying their being. You're denying what's important about them. And you're creating situations that simply make things worse. Uh, the drugs do shut down a lot of the pain. But I do believe they shut down a lot of the life in an individual and they shut down the potential for the kind of growth and transformation that leads to a more loving, creative, uh, dignified life. So, let me talk a little bit about my theory about how people get screwed up and I use the word screwed up even though It's a moral judgment, because it's my judgment that somebody is screwed up. It may or may not be theirs. Um, What happened when I began looking around for an alternative view, I realized I had to think outside the box. And I came across an article uh, by a Philip something or other. You know, I'll have to look it up. I want to give him credit. It's a small article that all people are politicians. And that led me thinking, all people are scientists. All people are economists. All people function in all areas like all of the sciences. And all people are politicians. And I began to look at the idea that all human relationships are political in one way or another. Politics is the way people organize themselves and form leadership. Politics is the way conflict is resolved. And anybody listening to me knows that all human beings inevitably are in conflict. Why are we inevitably in conflict? It's simple. We're all different. We don't want the same things, and we don't want the same things in at the same time. And this is true in all relationships. It's really true between lovers and husbands and wives, it's true between friends, it's true in classrooms, it's true in churches, and it's true between parent and child. So I began to look, as I read about politics, about different kinds of politics. America is supposed to be a democracy, and how does a democracy operate? A democracy operates with leaders, but the leaders are chosen, and the leaders have to respect the people who have given them the power to lead. The leader has to respect and the dignity of the citizens in which, uh, uh, with, with, with whom they deal. Right. And the leader has to be replaced if the leader uh, is unfair, inept, etc., and in America, we still have elections, although I think, and I've said this many times, the kind of democracy we have now uh, is not true democracy, and a lot of it, I think, is dying. Uh, as we become more insipid and as we become more dictatorial uh, in a variety of ways and more ignorant in a variety of ways, uh, less less concerned with the kind of narrative that guides us in our society. Now, the problem of a real democracy involves what happens with a family with children. Children cannot be the equals of their parents. They can 't make the decision that parents make. However, they can be helped to grow up to be capable of living in a democracy. They can have a voice that's heard. They can be respected. They don't have to be beaten. They don't have to be put down. They don't have to be attacked and dehumanized and made to feel that they are inferior beings to their parents. They know that they need leadership. They know that their parents are there to take care of them and that really there is nobody else. They watch. They understand. Their survival depends upon this. So how do you help a child grow up into a kind of a democratic structure? You listen to them. You don't call them names. You you keep an honest relationship as an authority, and you're clear as an authority. You remain an authority, but not necessarily a punitive authority. Uh, An adult with a child has all the high cards if they can learn to play with them or play them properly. The other kind of, the, of, of the other two kinds of, of politics are anarchy and the authoritarian, totalitarian. I'm not going to really talk about anarchy. Uh, anarchy is a kind of an extreme form of democracy where everybody is equal as a leader, and it very often does not work out. Well, anarchies work out well when you have a small group of friends who care about one another. What most people understand anarchy to be, is a breakdown in authority. And as I'll show you in a moment, when anarchy occurs, it's often because the authoritarian and the totalitarian forms of, of politics break down. And people don't know how to behave in terms of, of a democratic system. Okay, I think that, that's, that's clear so that children who are raised in authoritarian systems are raised in a very different way, because authoritarian politics operates from the top down. The leader speaks and everybody listens. What's important in an authoritarian system is obedience. Good children are obedient children. I hate the word obedient. I like children to begin to help understand why the morals that they're living with are really necessary for their survival rather than to be good because they don't want to be punished or afraid of having their head handed to them or being called terrible names. Uh, in a, in a an authoritarian system, the leader gets to eat first and often eats last. And anybody who wants anything Equal to the leader is called selfish. So good children are obedient, and good children genuflect and bow down, and good children grow up to kiss the ass of the leader and see the leader as superior to them. Now, the politics of this system is almost always based on a hierarchy of labels. Those at the top are, your, your majesty, they're wonderful they're celebrities, they're heroes, they are the best, they can do no wrong, those at the bottom can do no right, they are the lowest of the low, they are mentally ill, they're traitors, they're sinners, there are all kinds of labels given to them, when women uh, uh, attack the prerogatives of men, they're a bitch, there are all kinds of terrible labels, uh, We organize hierarchically by race. We organize hierarchically by religion. And the lower you are in the hierarchy of an authoritarian system, and I'll talk about totalitarian in a moment, the lower you are, the less human you are to those above you. And if you've ever been in a mental hospital, you know how unbelievably dehumanized the patients are uh compared to the psychiatrists and the administration that's at the top. Most politics, unfortunately, are authoritarian or totalitarian. Now what is totalitarian? Uh Gene Kirkpatrick was the uh the uh was the ambassador to the United Nations of Ronald Reagan. Never particularly liked him. Although, given the uh, presidents who have come after him, some of the conservative presidents, uh, he looms large and much less onerous than I thought of him when he was president. But she distinguished between an authoritarian and totalitarian. An authoritarian, things are all right as long as you do do what you're told to do. Just listen. Shut up and listen. In a totalitarian system, you have to be obedient in thought. Nobody understood that better than George Orwell in his magnificent and important psychology novel called 1984, where Winston Smith, uh, who dares to love and who dares to like poetry and attempt some form of creativity, uh, is tortured until he goes sane. And to be sane is to accept whatever Big Brother or the leader says. And so you're saying that Big Brother says two and two is five. And you not only agree with Big Brother that two and two is five, but that you believe in your heart of hearts that Big Brother is right and two and two is five. When you go after the thoughts of an individual, when you demand obedience, not just in behavior, when somebody is no good, can't be a member of the family is whipped and beaten and punished because they disagree with the fundamental story of that family or that school or that society you no longer have an authoritarian system but a totalitarian system and the people who are the sickest that i've ever worked with and seen are products of totalitarian systems they are raised with the dictum who are you going to believe me or your own eyes and you better believe me your father your mother your teacher your priest your rabbi whoever it is your imam your mullah uh, I don't care what religion it is the more authoritarian the more you're told that what you believe to the degree that it differs from the story that that the authority has makes you dangerous makes you bad makes you in need of great punishment until you are obedient, not just in behavior, but in thought. This is the dehumanization and the crushing of a human being and the human spirit. And the point at which an individual becomes their own authoritarian or totalitarian uh, critic They are in the deepest psychological pain, and they are in the deepest psychological difficulty. Life takes on a nightmare glow. I'm no good. What kind of a shit am I? I shouldn't have been born. My mother was right. I ruined the marriage. God hates me. What a terrible thing to believe that there is a force that governs the universe and that that force has targeted you for punishment and pain because you are somehow innately and forever a defective, ugly, damaged being. Life, as I understand it, becomes existence and becomes impossible. That is the, quote, sickness that people come to therapy with. So, what then do I believe a good therapist does? Well, I think in some ways I'm a good therapist. I know therapists, and I have known many, who I know are much better than me. They may not agree with my ideas. They may not talk about authoritarian politics. They may look at things from whatever theory they look at it. But when they sit down with another troubled, unhappy human being, they behave in a way that is humanistic, humane, and leads to a kind of open democratic relationship that allows the individual to test the waters, so to speak, and see if it's safe first to stop criticizing themselves and to see if they can't open up and talk about their past, to talk about uh, uh, their ideas and explore the theory and the story that they live by. And if a person can talk about their story and their past, something wonderful happens, particularly if they're not criticized for whatever they say. And that is, they come to own the story. And once you own a story, you've now begun to write it. And any story you can write, you can begin to rewrite. So, how does therapy, as I understand it, work? Well, first of all, I call psychotherapy, and if you read my, my page, my home page, I assume if you're listening, that's what you're listening to, I put quotation marks around therapy. Psychotherapy has quotation marks. I like the word psychotherapy, uh, and I say it, I can't, you know, the quotation marks disappear when you do things verbally. But why do I put quotation marks? Because... I believe that I'm not dealing with sick people. No therapist is dealing with a truly sick person. If they are, they really need to send them to a medical doctor, and not a pseudo-medical doctor, uh, but somebody who is a true medical doctor who will deal with the cancer or the high blood pressure or the brain damage or whatever happens to be dealt with that is a true diagnosed medical problem. But what the individual does... Uh, is a metaphorical therapy because they're dealing with metaphorical illnesses, not true illnesses. As I say often, a broken heart is not a heart that's physically necessarily broken. To, To be sick at heart, to be sick in your soul, doesn't necessarily mean in any way that you're physically sick, that you're medically ill. And that results, sickness of the heart results from too many tragedies, and too much rejection, and too much loneliness, and too much self-hatred, and too much pain, uh, uh, in the course of growing up or trying to become the individual unique person that each of us happens to be. I should add something here about politics. I believe every human being is unique, and at the same time, every human being needs other human beings. So that um, being psychologically healthy, and I put that in quotes, involves a kind of a tightrope. How do I become part of the family of man? How do I become part of a family? How do I become part of an institution like a school? How do I become part of a love relationship? How do I form a relationship but at the same time remain an individual? To give up your individuality and join the mob is to be crushed. To be totally isolated is to end up either in jail or in a crazy house being diagnosed schizophrenic or something else. When an individual is too terrified of other people to form a relationship, then self-hatred and loneliness become very difficult to bear. When an individual submerges themselves and never has an original idea, then they're also a tortured soul, because you can only go so far in destroying yourself, or allowing yourself to be destroyed. Winston Smith did not mind dying at the end of of, of, uh, 1984. He betrays his lover. He betrays himself. He betrays his best ideals. We don't blame him for doing this, Because what he was subjected to, the torture uh, and and the degradation that he was... But he's destroyed nonetheless. He's no longer a creative living being. So how do we help another individual? Well, the first thing I think is important, and I'm going to kind of close this down. Uh, I think I only have nine minutes. If anybody would like to call in and talk... I'm going to have to do a second show. I won't do it again this week. But next Monday, I'll do psychotherapy part two. Um, I'm kind of tired. I find that uh, I can't do an hour. It's just impossible for me to do an hour. Uh, and I'll talk about the fact that when we uh, work with somebody in a good therapy, uh, it's always voluntary. It's non-coercive. It's respectful. It's um, respectful. Um, Confidentiality is a must. You know what? I'm going to save most of this for next week. And I'll stay on the air a couple more minutes Uh, if anybody wants to uh, call in uh, and talk uh, and share their ideas. I don't know how many people are there. Um, uh, I don't know. But I find out later when I hang up, I can find out how many people actually listen to the show. It's sometimes... One, two. I've had ten or eleven, uh, and people tend to come to this uh, uh, program late. But they come to the archive, and uh, some of the archives I've done in the past have had uh, uh, people in the thousands who have come to. I don't know how long. I could probably find that out. How long they've stayed, how much they've listened to. But I don't want to even know. The fact that uh, I see people coming is gratifying. So if there is nobody who wants to uh, speak to me, uh, nobody wants to come on and call 646-716-7756, which is a freebie, although you probably have your own uh, 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 unlimited calling from your own phone, so it won't cost you anything. Uh, okay, I'm going to say good night and prepare for next week Part 2 of Psychotherapy, and talk about the specifics that I believe are critically important if you are going to become a so-called patient or client. Actually, I don't even know what to call the people I work with except the people I work with. That's what they are, the people I work with. Uh, And On that show, I will also try to uh, give you information of how to, when you go into a therapist's office, make sure that, uh, uh, you get the kind of help that I think is critical. Uh, my colleague Lou Wynn, and you can go back into the show I did with him, uh, early, very early in my, uh, 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 career on Blog Talk Radio, uh, and who, uh, helped me interview, uh, Thomas Zass, uh, who is his hero as well as mine, uh, says that one of the outcomes of a good therapy, or assures a good therapy, is when you say to the therapist, I don't want to be diagnosed. I don't want to be diagnosed. Now, that raises all kinds of problems because how then do you fill out an insurance form? Uh, there are all kinds of problems then about honesty, and a good therapeutic relationship contains as much honesty as there can possibly be. But I'm going to leave that for next week. So, I've enjoyed this tonight. And uh, I hope whoever listens to this will enjoy it. And um, good night. Take care. And I will try to be here again, 8 o'clock, probably next Monday or Tuesday. Uh, I don't know. If there's a bridge game next Monday, maybe I'll play. Maybe I won't. And I'll do the show then. Or else I will do it on Tuesday. So, good night. Take care. And goodbye.